So today I'm speaking with Eric Gervin, who is an associate professor at the University of Oregon School of Law, where he teaches courses on civil litigation and the law and psychology of discrimination. He earned his JD at Harvard Law School and a PhD in psychology at the University of Minnesota. In his research, Eric focuses on the use of psychological theory and quantitative methods to identify when and how race discrimination occurs in a variety of contexts. He also collaborates extensively with colleagues in the University of Oregon College of Education and elsewhere to use that information to help design more targeted approaches for addressing racial discipline disparities. Among other funded projects, Eric is currently co-PI on two Institute of Education Sciences Intervention Development Grants, which are focused on reducing racial disparities in school discipline. Today, we'll be discussing his 2019 article in Educational Psychologist entitled, Tail, Tusk, and Trunk, What Different Metrics Reveal About Racial Disproportionality in School Discipline, which he wrote with Kent McIntosh and Keith Smolkowski. So Eric, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. So... Can you give our listeners just a, a brief summary of the main focus of your article? Yeah, the main focus of Tail, Tusk, and Trunk is looking at how it is researchers, policymakers, those working in schools measure racial disparities. Uh, the common ways to measure it, we know from our experience and uh, is now required under the IDEA, is with something called risk ratios. In our experience in using risk ratios, we realized that they have a lot of challenges. And so we did some exploring to figure out how we might come up with alternatives that provided the sort of information that we thought we actually wanted and what a lot of people who are in policymaking and intervention design fields might want about them. So in sum, Tail, Tusk, and Trunk is essentially an exploration and description of different ways of measuring racial disparities with the hopes of trying to inform people about the advantages and disadvantages of them so that they could make intelligent selections between them. So this is a, a topic that's um, really near and dear to my heart in that I really think it's important to make sure that we understand what we're measuring and that we take a sophisticated and informed approach to measurement. So I was really pleased to see your article get published and, and to read it. I, I want to start by just making sure that we're all kind of on the same page when it comes to what racial disproportionality is and how it manifests in schools. Can you talk about that for just a minute? This is, in a way, one of the questions that this piece is trying to answer is what do we even mean by racial disparities? But to take your question from where most of the research is, we know from wide-scale data collection by the U.S. Department of Education Office of Civil Rights that minority students, uh, students of color, particularly African-American students, tend to experience discipline at much higher rates than students from other racial and ethnic groups. So, for example, whereas African-American youth might make up about 16% of public school students, uh, they make up about 39% of out-of-school suspensions. That kind of disparity is unfortunately um, longstanding and fairly common in the sense that it's not limited to one particular geographic area of the country. So there's been a lot of work now documenting those disparities. I mentioned that Office of Civil Rights work. Um, there's a lot of other extensive surveys and reviews uh, establishing it. What we're trying to do now is move past just merely documenting the disparities to understanding when and why they occur so we can try to do a better job of addressing them. So that's incredibly important work and therefore further underlines the importance of doing a good job, understanding these phenomena, measuring them, examining them. 
one of the things that you talked about in the article was this difference between office referrals by teachers and out-of-school suspensions by administrators. Can you explain a little bit how those might be motivated by different things and kind of how someone would make a good decision about which of those to use when investigating disproportionality? Yeah. So a lot of work and not just work on disproportionality, but a lot of large scale quantitative work tend to be cross-sectional. We tend to imagine that there's a specific decision that's made or a specific event that we're interested in. We assess it. What we tend to lose sight of is that these kinds of ultimate decisions like an out-of-school suspension is actually the product of a long series of interactions, often between teachers and their students um, in classrooms, et cetera. And the way it happens is, you know, teachers and students have those interactions, develop those relationships. At some point, student does something that the teacher um, understands in that moment as uh, problematic, a violation of behavioral expectation, one that can't be managed in the classroom, and so sends the student to the office. At that point, an administrator, maybe a vice principal, will ultimately take over and gets a report or a description about what happens from the teacher and maybe sits down with the student, gathers some more information, ultimately makes a final decision. Psychologically, we suspect that those two situations are quite different from one another. A teacher, for example, standing up in front of their class, they might have 30 students, they're trying to teach their lessons and subject matter and reach those goals, and essentially are engaged in a lot of multitasking. And so uh, behavioral management in that multitasking situation is one that a psychologist might think of as a situation of high cognitive load, one where it might be hard to focus on particular students to devote the time to do that when you're trying to satisfy multiple goals, the educational ones as well as the behavioral ones. That might compare to a school administrator who is, of course, also very busy. And when school administrators tend to sit down with a student or focus on a discipline decision to figure out what that final outcome might be, they have the, the ability to be more focused, the ability to consider that information a little bit more deeply, uh, the ability to gather more information if it's necessary, depending on how serious it is. And so maybe not as much multitasking or in psychological terms, cognitive load at that particular time. And that may affect how those decisions operate with respect to racial disparities in the sense of how much might uh, stereotyping and other influences impact their judgments. And so that's that suggests to me that there may be some kinds of research questions where you want to understand the psychology and the thinking behind the office referral. And there's other kinds of questions where it's actually the out-of-school suspension that matters. And in both cases, we need to think about the kind of cognitive and psychological processing that's going on and how they could differ between the two. That's right. Yes. So that's one of the things that you mentioned in the article as far as what I would say is taking kind of a broad view of racial disproportionality measurements. So um, I, I love your title. I like titles that are interesting and tail, tusk, and trunk is a great way to start, obviously referencing the story about the blind men and the elephant, and each person kind of has their own perspective on the elephant and putting them together. And uh, if I'm understanding correctly, I think the main point is that we really need multiple metrics to understand complex problems. And we need to understand of all the metrics that we might be exposed to, which ones provide kind of unique benefits and under what conditions should we use different metrics. So, you know, what are some of the concerns or problems that can result when we don't pay sufficient attention to how we measure things like racial disproportionality? 
Yeah, so there's some um, some concrete examples, and um, I'll start off by saying, as somebody who works on intervention design and testing in a variety of areas, we're also mindful that there's a need, certainly as you mentioned, for multiple measures to get the best picture of the situation you can. I'm also mindful of the need for parsimony. So one of our main questions that we had uh, that motivated this piece and the exploration behind it was not just are there different ways to measure disproportionality, but in what ways do those matter? And so to your question, what we wanted to do was figure out when using one metric might lead somebody to a different conclusion than using a different metric. One of the examples that we found and explain in the piece is the difference between risk ratios, which I mentioned earlier, the more most common measure of racial disproportionality, the risk of a target group um, experiencing discipline over the risk of a reference group, often all other students. In that comparison, we know some things already about disadvantages of risk ratios. They are fairly unstable in the sense that unless you have fairly large numbers, small changes in either of the risks can make the the ratio move around quite a bit. And that that can be problematic for some reasons we can talk about later. And they're widely used. And we think part of the reason that they're widely used is they have a really intuitive understanding when you explain them to people and that they are just the number of times more your group of interest, your target group are experiencing that discipline event over the reference group. So it's easy to tell someone, hey, there's a risk ratio of two, and that means your African-American students are being sent to the office or suspended or expelled twice as often as your other students. And people get that, oh, twice as often, that kind of have an intuitive understanding what that means. So I might compare those to risk differences, which is essentially mathematically just subtracting the, the risk of the reference group from the risk of the target group. And so they end up on the metric of risks. So a percentage risk, if you have African-American students that um, have 20% of them are being sent to the office, they have a risk of 0.2, uh, and 10% of your other students are being sent to the office, so they have a risk of 0.1, your risk difference is 0.1, just subtracting the two of them. So they're on that measure of that, but people don't quite understand necessarily as intuitively what, what that means. Okay, there's a 0.1 or 10% difference between them. And so it's not used as much. That said, returning to your base question about what difference can make, you can compute risk differences when there are smaller numbers or non-existent numbers. So if if any of those risks happen to be zero, you can't meaningfully compute the risk ratio, but you can a risk difference. So that's a condition where the, the difference between them matters. And one that we explored in here, which I think is more important and people don't realize very much, is that as you decrease the number of discipline events, your risk ratios will actually tend to increase and your risk differences will tend to decrease. That could be really important because common, I guess, school discipline interventions, a lot of them are designed to improve the school climate by reducing the overall rates at which students violate behavioral expectations, you might say. So if you put in a school discipline intervention that does that and does that successfully by reducing the overall rates of discipline in the school, what you'll find is the school's racial disparities will go up if you measure them with risk ratios, making it look like those disparities have become worse. And at the exact same school, the risk differences will go down, making it look like the racial disparities have gotten better um, just because of your choice of metric. 
I always worry when we implement interventions and we don't get the effects we expected, I worry that we just haven't identified the right contexts. And so we might end up deciding that a particular intervention isn't efficacious when in fact it is. We just chose schools that didn't need it or didn't need it as much or maybe weren't the right context for it. Yes, definitely. Um, I've done a little bit of follow-up work on that, looking at civil rights data, just to estimate those practical impacts very similar type of exercise. If you identify schools in one year, what would it mean to intervene in them? And to your point, identifying those contexts where essentially you, you actually need the most support and also it's where it's most likely to be effective and, and doing that identification accurately. One of the comparisons that I did there was just looking at if you were to take the 10% of schools that have the largest number of students impacted by racial disparities and you were to try to identify that magnitude using raw differential representation that basically assess that measure. I was looking at the 2015-16 school year, about 343 local educational agencies, thinking maybe as school districts, would have met that criterion. And that would have represented 556,700 um, African-American students that were suspended in that year that would not have been suspended if they were suspended at the same rate as other students. So about half a million students mm. being impacted. Wow. If you try to do that same problem identification to identify the 10% worst LEAs in terms of risk ratios, and then you look at the number of students impacted, it's far smaller. In fact, if you were to intervene in them, um, as we talked about earlier, a lot of interventions reduce discipline disparities. If you were to intervene in each of those school districts by reducing the overall rates of discipline, you would have essentially reduced the number of African-American students who were suspended or expelled by over 100,000 in that first set of schools. And you would reduce the number of African-American students who were suspended in the second set identified with risk ratios by about 7,500. Um, so to your effectiveness piece, you'd be essentially less than 6% as effective if you identified your problem with schools with risk ratios versus um, raw differential representation. And those are real students who are being disproportionately affected. So that choice of metric and use of metrics in an informed way is critically important to the goals of this work. So um, that's really helpful. Thank you for explaining that. And I don't want to get too deep into the statistics. Your paper does a really nice job of explaining these different metrics and kind of the underlying calculations to them. I think that's that's probably hard to do over a podcast. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe in learning styles, but I do think it'd be tough to listen to someone describe a statistical formula. Um, but nonetheless, do you have some suggestions for kind of what kinds of metrics um, or different kinds of metrics that people might want to use when they're, for example, looking at a single school versus looking at different schools versus looking at interventions? Yeah, so definitely. Um, it really does depend on the context and the question. And that was, again, part of the goal of this paper is to, to lay out with enough detail that it would actually be usable for people to understand and think critically about which metrics they should be selecting. But there are some broad categories. One of the things we did in this paper um, is compare some I've talked to, uh, metrics I've talked about already, risk ratios and risk differences. And those are pretty common. Um, you see those in the literature um, with some frequency. We also compared some that are less common, but turn out to be maybe much better for particular kinds of circumstances. And so I'll just 
pull those two out there, um, at least two of those out there. One of them um, was looking at standardized effect sizes, um, which some people think about a comparison of Z-scores for um, those with the stats backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we developed one of our own that we call raw differential representation. And raw differential representation is um, in the metric of students. So it is literally the number of students in your target group that experienced discipline and would not have if they were disciplined at the same rate as your other students. Mm-hmm. Um, so putting that menu out, um, the fifth metric, by the way, that we review in here is essentially the discipline rate, the overall discipline rate. Mm-hmm. Um, So when you put those out there, you can say that metrics like the risk ratio and the risk difference are really good for taking snapshots of comparing schools that might have different enrollment numbers. Um, And particularly risk ratios, I think they're used a lot and recommended a lot because they do have that intuitive explanation. Mm -hmm. They are not good metrics at comparing things over time. Um, and so that change and maybe testing intervention, one of the things that we did in this piece was compare how much uh, instability they have and how much that matters. Um, and it turns out to matter quite a lot. The other metrics that I talked about of them, that raw differential representation one, turns out to be quite a bit more stable over time. Um, and so it's not used very much. But that basic idea is um, if you're trying to implement an intervention in a school and you want to know whether it works, um, reduces the impact of racial disparities, for example, um, that one will end up being better than your other measures, I think, at giving the information that you actually want and will be stable enough to use over time. Raw differential representation by comparison, because it is in the metrics of students, is influenced by enrollment. So it's not necessarily very good for comparing racial disparities in schools that are fairly small in enrollment versus very fairly large in enrollment. Um, it doesn't really adjust for that or control for the differences in enrollment. And so for that, you'd want to look at risk ratios or risk differences. So that's really helpful. And it, it might be helpful for people to have you explain for just a minute what you mean by stability over time um, and how certain metrics may not always do a good job of identifying schools that are problematic from year to year. There's two different ways that we assess the stability of the measures in this. And I think they're consistent with uh, different perspectives that you'd find in a lot of the methods literature. So the first one you might think about as a test retest reliability. Um, How much do these measures actually give you the same result over time? So what we did is we took a sample of schools just to illustrate this and um, compared measures, the the different measures taken in one year to those taken in the next year and the following year. So we had three years worth of of data for them. And so we could look at correlations between the measures and look at, for example, correlation of a risk ratio in a school for office discipline referrals to the, uh, the correlation between that measure in uh, the first year versus the next academic year, uh, we found that correlation was about 0.6, a little bit higher. Um, and if you look at the correlation between the risk ratio in year one to that in what we think of as year three, goes down to about 0.5. Both of those are below the reliabilities that are recommended for scales and far below what we might want for intervention work if we're actually trying to identify, for example, schools with serious uh, discipline issues. 
Um, if we do the same thing in out-of-school suspensions, the risk ratio is, is much worse, actually. The correlation between the measures in year one and year two was 0.28, um, and year one and year three was 0.15, um, which if we were using that in a kind of a measurement standpoint, I guess not a term of art, but I'd say that's basically garbage. Um, (laughs) You're not learning very much at all about which schools um, are going to have two years from now when you measure their risk ratios in in the current year. So we might compare that to our raw differential representation. That one I measured is much more stable. And the correlations from year one to year two for both office discipline referrals and out-of-school suspensions were above 0.9. And the correlations from year one to year three were above 0.8, year eight and a half. So actually right in the area that you would want from a measurement standpoint to have that kind of reliability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really important. So how I interpret that is if a measure isn't stable from year to year, then, you know, one year a school may appear to have relatively low disproportionality and the next year have high and the next year have low and you really don't know what's going on. And if that's the case, then when you introduce an intervention, you can't if there's some kind of change from year to year, you don't know, was it due to the intervention? Was it due to the unreliability of the measure? Um, it really leaves you kind of sifting around in the garbage, to use your term a little bit, which I think is accurate, which is why I think you make a really nice point in the article that you want to choose a metric that is stable over time, even if it's maybe less interpretable on its face than some other measures. Is that on target? Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, you have to understand what the goal of your project is. And one of the, I guess we could put this in a few different lights, a lot of intervention work is done through essentially problem solving models. And so one of your initial things that you want to do is problem identification. And that means identifying the schools that have the most serious issue where addition of further support or an intervention might do the greatest good. And the problem with unstable measures is that if you assess using risk ratios what your worst schools are, because the measure itself is unstable, even though there might be no change, only a small fraction of those schools are still going to be identifiable as having that that magnitude of a problem the next year and the year after, even if you do nothing. And that doesn't mean that the world has gotten better. It means other schools are taking their place. Mm -hmm. And so even identifying which schools to be able to intervene in and be effective if your measure isn't stable enough can be really challenging. So as we know, um, interventions take multiple years. You might identify a school based on their data from, say, the 2015-16 school year. You might then spend the summer getting ready and start your intervention in the um, 16-17 school year, and then you're going to be assessing again how it does in the next school year. There's no guarantee if your metric is really unstable that you even picked sort of the right schools to intervene in in that first year. Not only are you not wasting resources, which is really, really important, particularly in this day and age with school funding, but you're also giving yourself more of a chance to have a context that's sensitive to your intervention. Yes, definitely. So let me take a moment and uh, paint a little picture. If you can imagine yourself as a, a school administrator or researcher who's trying to reduce racial disparities in school discipline. And you know you can only intervene in a few schools. And so what you want to do is take your schools, look at the discipline numbers you got from last year, and identify some schools to do an intervention in. And that intervention, of course, probably won't be able to start until the next year and will take at least a year to do, but maybe as long as three years. 
So one of the things that we did is calculate what it would look like based on those three years worth of school data that we had, if you were to engage in that, in that exercise. And that information, incidentally, is in the online supplement for this piece. Well, let's give you an example. If you have to use a threshold to identify schools for which ones to intervene in, that basically is, is a fairly high threshold in the sense that you're only going to be intervening in a fairly small number of schools that have what you regard to have essentially the, the worst issues um, or need the most support, another way to frame it. If you use risk ratios, take a sample of schools. Here we looked at uh, the sample that we had was close to 500 in each year. And if you take a, a threshold, say what we're going to do is we're going to intervene in the 5% of them that are worst. Um, in the particular sample we had in year one, that would have identified 28 schools, 28 or 29 schools, depending on how you round, using each of the metrics. And so the question is, because keep in mind that we didn't intervene in any of these schools. So the question is, which of those schools would still be above that threshold in the second year and the third year? And a way to assess the stability of the measure. So if you use risk ratios... Um, of those 28 schools in year two, keeping in mind you hadn't done any intervention, only 11 of them still would be regarded as problematic enough to identify for intervention. And uh, in the following school year, only seven. So that means that, you know, doing some quick math, um, if you were to have intervened in all of those, you might say that the, the majority of them right? Uh, two thirds to three quarters of the schools that you intervened in were n would no longer be above that threshold for problematic, even if you had done nothing by the time your intervention is done. Mm -hmm. um, another way to say that is because that doesn't mean that there are no other schools that are above the threshold is that because of the lack of stability of the measure, two thirds of your interventions were maybe not targeted to the correct schools. It's about the same for risk differences when we ran them, actually a little bit worse um, of in that case, we would have identified about 29 schools in that first year, um, only four of them in the second year and three of them in the third year would have been above that same threshold. Um, so we could compare that to that other metric I talked about, raw differential representation, um, identifying 29 schools in the first year, 20 of them would be above that threshold in the second year and 19 of them in the third year. So in that case, while you still have some drop-off, uh, about two-thirds of the schools that you'd selected for intervention were consistently problematic enough to, to be above that threshold that you did. And so you're not wasting quite as many intervention resources. And that suggests that, as you said, you really need to understand the questions you need to ask to identify the schools and then the ways that you might assess the impact of the intervention. And, and those might require different or multiple metrics. And that's a, a point that you make really well in the piece. And then it seems to me that there's a, an analogy here to kind of sometimes how psychologists talk to the public about their work in that sometimes if we're not careful, we can mislead people. It's kind of like, you know, you can say that there's a statistically significant difference. Um, you can say there's a difference here and people could get really excited about that. But if it's uh, not a practically significant difference, and if you don't mention that, people can be led astray. They can think that, oh, there's something really important here that I need to pay attention to and invest funds in or time in. And it, practically, it might not be worth that. It strikes me that what you're advocating here is different metrics and multiple metrics to really understand where the problems are and then how best to measure the effective interventions when trying to address them. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, another great example of that is actually that 
I guess, another feature of the information that's provided by a risk ratio, again, that, that most common measure, and that it actually doesn't give you that much information about the practical effect of the problem. Um, and I think that you're absolutely right that that's a lot of what policymakers and people who are designing interventions and working on problem identification are maybe actually interested in is identifying the areas where the, the magnitude of the problem is worse. And just as a quick example of that, you know that I mentioned earlier, the risk ratio is essentially just dividing the risk for your target group, often African-American students in this context, or the risk of all other students um, so if we take a risk of out-of-school suspensions, for example, and if 20% of your African-American students have been sent to the office, they have a risk of 0.2, and 10% of your other students have been sent to the office, they have a risk of 0.1, uh, that gives us a risk ratio of 2. You can get the same risk ratio if you have a school where 2%, 0.02 risk of your African-American students have an out-of-school suspension, and 1% of your other students, a risk of 0.01. And so those schools have exactly the same risk ratios too, but in one of the schools, 10% of the African-American student population is the practical impact of the racial disproportionality. And in the other school, 1% of the African-American student population is the practical impact. And we might think about those two schools quite differently, even though their risk ratios are the same. And in the piece, in the article, you make a, a really nice point that, you know, obviously all disproportionality is is not a good thing and we want to try to address it. But, you know, when you have limited funds or limited resources, you, you might want to target that 10% school rather than that 1% school. So I think what you're describing here makes a lot of sense. I mean, is there a scenario where risk ratio is a good thing to look at, that it's a useful thing, that you would recommend people pay attention to that? Um, as I've been doing this for the last few years and trying out different ones, frankly, the best reason to use a risk ratio is that it has that intuitive explanation. Mm -hmm. I think when people are talking about inequity, that two, three, four times as bad for one group as another group has some kind of weight to it. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's persuasive weight. Maybe it's weight that helps lay people understand or kind of imagine the problem. I'm not sure, though, that there are a lot of circumstances where that outweighs the disadvantages of it, because there's a lot of situations where you can't compute them, as I mentioned earlier. If we're doing studies, if you're doing uh, intervention studies where you want to do change over time, not only is it unstable, but if you're trying to look at something like classrooms over the school year and you want to look at the amount of discipline in those classrooms quarterly a lot of them might not even have enough to compute risk ratios. And so you're going to end up with a lot of empty cells just because the metric you chose can't be computed. Um, and in those circumstances, you can compute risk differences. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we've moved in a lot of our work to starting as a default to using risk differences because they can be computed. And it's not, they still have some stability issues. Uh, and so in that sense, we'll provide some noisy data. But you can track them for something like the classroom level across a year, you know, with some multiple time points in a way that risk ratios just might not be possible without a lot of missing data. So again, I think that's a really important and useful part of your article is to kind of identify these implications for practice. Are there other implications for practice that we haven't talked about that you think you would want our listeners to know about? Um, I think one of them that's come up a couple of times really does bear emphasis is that it's unlikely that one of these metrics, one of the metrics will be the uh, 
um, end all be all and will provide you all the information that you want. Mm -hmm. And so I would really recommend as practice that they do think about and try to get more comfortable with kind of a toolbox of metrics because it can be really important um, to do that. And I know that there is a learning curve in talking to folks and working on them. If you look at the kind of things, for example, that states and local educational agencies have to compute under the IDEA, there are a lot of different metrics that need to be computed in comparisons for a lot of different groups. And so if you add additional metrics to those comparisons, you're multiplying the amount of work. And that can be really challenging. So I, I'm sympathetic to that and think that maybe we can come up with some ways to potentially automate how these are computed and other things. But I think the value of having that additional information of sort of understanding what the limitations of what you're using are ultimately provide a lot of savings because otherwise you end up identifying a school. I think you rightly said all disproportionality is bad, but you might um, be identifying schools for intervention targets where the number of students that are being impacted by racial disproportionality is in the single digits and ignoring some schools where that number is in the hundreds because mm -hmm. uh, the risk ratio is just not telling you. Yeah, it's a, it's a translation issue. It's an issue where sometimes as scholars and psychologists or lawyers, as the case may be, there's a lot of background information that we have that we know is important, that we paid attention to to get to a decision. But when we communicate that decision or that recommendation to other people, sometimes we have to translate it into something that they can understand easily. So you know, it could be that people did a lot of work to identify the schools that should be targeted first. In communicating that, maybe the risk ratio is the best way to do that, um, just to convince a layperson, even though you know that it's maybe not the best measure overall, but to explain all the other ones isn't going to get you the kind of impact that you're looking for. That sounds to me like a, a way in which people might take your article and kind of translate it into practice to better understand each of these metrics and how they could best be used. Yeah, uh, that's definitely right. What are you working on now? Uh, what you know, research or intervention work has got you excited at the moment? Yeah, so I, as you I guess noted in the introduction, I maybe have a little bit of an unconventional background for folks who do this kind of work. And so I don't just work in schools. Uh, I work on trying to understand the context in which racial disparities occur in a wide variety of areas and, and not surprisingly, given, given my academic home is in a law school, um, some of those are legal. So I'm working right now with uh, the state of Oregon's Criminal Justice Commission to look at projects around where in the process of criminal justice, the criminal justice system, racial disparities are magnified or stabilized or even uh, mitigated. And as a measurement problem, as an empirical problem, and as a psychological theory problem, it's very much like what we talked about earlier, where understanding that we might recognize we have racial disparities in incarcerations, but just looking at incarcerations misses the idea that what we had is a whole series of decisions around arrests, charging decisions, potential sentencing decisions, et cetera, that preceded it. And each of those might have contextual features that are different than the final sentencing decision. And so understanding that problem requires a lot of the same tools here. And so I think going back and forth between different so you think about it as domains that have similar problems, I think is, is one of the things that excites me because I will learn something working in the school setting that will uh, or draw my attention to a particular issue or problem that I'll be able to go and use in another setting 
Um, and that's, yeah, that's a very exciting chance to do that. And one of the reasons I like um, transdisciplinary work. That's fascinating. And it, it's a nice transfer between what you call different domains. Um, and I thought your example was really useful. It, it kind of, in my mind, seems like a, a chain of decisions, right? There's a chain of events or decisions that might lead to someone having an out-of-school suspension or being incarcerated. And it strikes me that the psychology behind each of those decisions and the contextual factors that affect each of those decisions may be different. If we assume they're all the same, we're probably not going to be as efficacious as we could be if we tried to understand each decision point on its own. Um, is that a fair way of thinking about it? Yeah, that's right. And a framework that we're using and a term that we use for that is called vulnerable decision points. And it's basically trying to capture the idea that there are, might be certain contextual features of situations that make them more likely to produce racial disparities um, and certain contextual features that make them less likely. Mm. And so if we are going to be able to do interventions in light of resource constraints. If we're going to target our interventions, we want to understand what those particular contextual features are so we can target the ones with the biggest problems and where we can do the most good with the, the interventions that we know can be effective. Yeah. So the, the kind of thinking that might lead a teacher to disproportionately refer a certain group of students to the principal may be different than the contextual factors or thinking that might lead a principal to disproportionately uh, suspend students and, and likewise in other domains as well. Yes. And so that's looking both cross-sectionally at different contexts during the school day, during the, in the school environment, um, during the classroom interactions. We look at them that way, as well as the what we think of as a kind of longitudinal ones about classroom versus administrators, um, early interactions versus late interactions. So we have some studies that are examining that and how much, for example, if you look at office discipline referrals compared to final outcomes, how racial disparities differ between those. Are racial disparities magnified in the suspension decision or are they just carried forward from disparities that might already be in the um, office referrals themselves or even potentially mitigated? And so understanding that as far as identifying the best intervention targets is, is effectively the goal of that work. So Eric, this was really interesting and you're doing very, very important work. So thank you. I encourage all of our listeners to check out your 2019 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Tail, Tusk, and Trunk, What Different Metrics Reveal About Racial Disproportionality in School Discipline, written by our guest today, Eric Griffin and Kent McIntosh and Keith Smolkowski. So Eric, thanks again so much. Thank you for having me.